just be in the Bible, be in the Word. And uh, this is a, a man who many of you will know. So Daniel is the man, the ninth chapter. Daniel 1 to 4. And we're going to just look at this passage in the presence of the Lord. God loves his word. And uh, I believe he honors his word. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Just get this going. There we go, 1 to 4. And uh, I know it's a long passage, but I don't want you to go switching off on me. So I want us all to read the passage together, shall we? So I want you to put on your best Shakespearean. And we're going to just bellow out this prophetic, this word, shall we, from Daniel. Here we go. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then follows this amazing prayer of Daniel's. And if you know about it, you'll know it is an amazing, an amazing prayer. Daniel, by this time, Daniel 9, is an old, old man. And uh, uh, found an old man's picture and put that up there. But he's very old. He's in Persia, or what had once been Babylon. And uh, if you remember the story when Daniel was a very young man, maybe in his teens, uh, in Jerusalem where he grew up, he and numbers of others were taken by the Babylonians and sent into exile far, far away from home. And, uh, and over those years, Daniel stands firm. If you know the story, you can read about how God uses him and his friends in those early chapters of Daniel and how Daniel was eventually entrusted with amazing responsibility in the empire. Amazing responsibility. But all the way through, he has a deep walk with God. In fact, we know from his practice that he prayed three times a day. He would pray with the window open, praying down on his knees on the floor, praying towards Jerusalem, which was miles away, or the ruins of Jerusalem. And he would pray three times a day. And uh, it was his practice to pray because he carries a deep yearning in his heart for the place where God once dwelt amongst his people. And that's what Jerusalem symbolizes. It was the place where God was amongst his people. And that's uh, Daniel's yearning. In the meantime, God has blessed him, protected him and prospered him in Babylon. But he still yearns for Jerusalem. He still yearns for God to be amongst his people. And then one day, there he is before God. The scriptures are open. He's having his quiet time or whatever you choose to call it, devotion. And uh, the Bible falls open on a particular passage and the Jeremiah passage that it opens up on. Jeremiah had prophesied in Jerusalem leading up to the time when Jerusalem fell. And Jeremiah, before Jerusalem fell, prophesied and he said this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. So 70 years or so before, Jeremiah, as he was contemplating the fall of Jerusalem, Daniel had gone by then into Babylon. So Daniel's a very old man, but he's already contemplating the fall. And yet God speaks to Jeremiah, 70 years will pass 
and then, then I'll bring you home. And uh, roughly that 70 year period. And it's a powerful, powerful prophecy. And Daniel's reading it and suddenly the penny drops and his mind opens, a light switches on and he thinks it's time. After all these years, at last, God is going to take us home. And so this elderly man, maybe in his 80s by now, or maybe older, is sitting there thinking, my goodness, the prophecy, it's now. It's now. The promise is God will take us home. And in his sovereign power, God has a plan. And Daniel suddenly realized God is about to start working that plan out. It's like now the time has come. And you see, what he then does is extraordinary. I mean, notice, first of all, what Daniel does not do. He doesn't sort of gather all the Jews in Babylon together. Pack your bags. We're going back now. God has spoken. Let's go. He doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. Nor, nor does he say, sit back and think, well, whatever will be, will be. If God wants to do something now, then he'll have to make it happen. We'll just carry on as we were. No, he doesn't do that either. What he does is something else. He begins to pray in verse 3 of that Daniel 9 passage. He begins to pray. He says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God. In other words, knowing what the sovereign God has promised to do, his immediate response is to cry out to God to bring his promise to pass to make it happen. And if you look at the prayer that Daniel prays, if you read on, it is a mighty, mighty prayer full of passion and praise and faith and repentance and sorrow and triumph. It's all there. In fact, the last few verses of the prayer is this. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy, Lord. Listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act. It's a mighty prayer. And so can you see that this is how Daniel responds to God's sovereignty? It's not to rush headlong in and try and make things happen. It's not to sit back and not do anything. It's what's the promise? Ah, that's the promise. Then Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and Lord, act. Sovereignty of God, Lord, come and bring your promise to pass. So, so I love the way this works with the sovereignty of God. You know, we've been hearing about earlier today. I love the way this works. I, I love what was taught earlier today. See, too often in the past, uh, it occurs to me, the sovereignty of God has been taught so negatively and so disempoweringly, actually. It's been taught almost as a fatalistic thing. You know, what's the point of praying? What's the point of doing anything? God will do what he will do because after all, he's sovereign. And Ken touched on that. But uh, that's a misunderstanding of how God's sovereignty works. It's not because God is sovereign, I will not pray because what's the point? It's because he's sovereign and he's declared what he will do. Wow, I must pray. I must pray. And I can pray with confidence and heart and conviction and passion because the sovereign, all-powerful God has told me what he is going to do. It's a totally different attitude. And you can see the beautiful, the mystery of this in God is this, that, that in all of his sovereign power, God has nonetheless chosen to work 
his purposes and his promises out on earth through the prayers of his people. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to in his sovereign grace. And you'll see this again and again. I mean, even when, uh, for Jesus in the Gospels, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, pray like this, pray your kingdom come. But of course, we know that God's kingdom is coming. And yet Jesus says, pray it anyway. Pray, pray, pray. That's God's promise, bring his kingdom in, but pray. And so God chooses to partner with us and involve us in his great plans. He calls us to, to be part of his promises being fulfilled. And so Daniel prays. And then if you read later on, you'll find that God then opens the door and he raises up other movers and shakers, the Nehemiahs, the Zacharias and Ezra's and others who begin to take the people of God back and wave after after wave. God raises up the people and sends them back. And that's why prayer is so wonderful. We get the privilege even tonight of praying in the promises of our sovereign God. That's what makes prayer so exciting to me. And it's actually in that context, I think, that James says the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. The context is about Elijah and about praying in the promises of God. So it's very powerful. So tonight, it's important that we come to pray because God has revealed promises about his plans and his church that have not yet come to pass. Things he will do, things he has a heart to see happen. And actually, you know, there are so many wonderful prophetic promises. If you search them out in Scripture, they are everywhere of what God wants to do. And uh, I think one of his greatest prophetic promises of all, or greatest promises, is of course this one. It's been mentioned already today. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a huge promise. What it's saying is that God will one day flood the earth with his kingdom, with the knowledge of who he is. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. What a prayer to pray. What a promise to pray in. Now, within that huge promise, of course, there are other promises, and I especially love some of the promises concerning God's church. And uh, some of the most wonderful are prophetically laid out in the Old Testament. You may have come across some of these prophetic promises in the past. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. If you ask yourself, what is the mountain of the Lord's temple? Well, Jerusalem, or where the temple was on the hill, that was the mountain. That was the place where God dwelt amongst his people. But of course, as the, the years unfolded and, and as the New Testament opens, uh, we find this that the people in whom God dwells is the church. Actually, it is the church. In other words, there will come a day when the church will take its place as chief or highest among all else. That's what I'm looking for. Be seen in its glory, no longer as a joke, no longer as that funny little group on the edge of society. It will be the highest of the mountains. That's the promise. And all nations will stream to it. Hallelujah. It's not been fulfilled yet, although some would argue it's beginning to happen. Again, there's so many other prophecies as well. Isaiah 60, one of my particular favorites. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
that is a wonderful promise. It's saying that there will come a day, and again, many would say it's already begun when the glory of the Lord rises upon his church, upon his people. And as glory continues to rise, and as it rises, nations will come to the brightness of its dawn, or the glory that is amongst his people. And this is speaking about a glorious church that God is promising to build in the land. It's a wonderful promise. It's his intent. The church that is to be strong and full of the spirit and power, full of love and holiness and humility and grace. That's the church that God is building. Wonderful. A church that will be seen so that nations will be drawn. And the promises are that God's intent is building his church whatever opposes it. And so in Matthew 16, when Jesus is speaking to his, oops, his, uh, his disciples, he says to them, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it or prevail against it. That's a wonderful promise, actually. It's often been misunderstood too because people traditionally think that what this picture means is that the church, is a picture of the church being attacked by the enemy but continuing to build anyway. And so the enemy not prevailing it. But actually, you don't attack a person with gates, do you? you? You defend. So what it's really talking about is this, is that, is that my church, Jesus says, will continue to grow, continue to take ground, and the defences of the enemy will not stop it. That's what that passage really means, it seems to me. And that's a great promise, and we need to pray that through. So it's important to pray. There are promises, many others we could bring out, that uh, we want to see fulfilled in the church, through the church, and to the glory of God. And how about this one here, this, this last great promise, which uh, again, many of us will know. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's a great promise. That's a great promise. In other words, if we call on his name with humility and seek his face, he will answer and heal the land. And, and listen, doesn't our land need healing? Our society, our people need healing. And that's the promise. And just to say, all these promises, they're epic in scale, aren't they? The whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Nations streaming into the church that God is seeking to build. They are epic, epic promises. But remember, we are praying to a God who does move in epic proportions around the earth even now. Even now, nations are being affected by this amazing sovereign power of God. Even now. And I think even in this nation as well, you know, only 160 or so years back, it was estimated at one point that over half of the population in these islands had turned to Christ in a measure of about 20 years. That is phenomenal in terms of what God can do. He can move epically. He has moved epically in this nation. And that's our context tonight. All right, that's our context. The thing we just need to remember about epic promises is that they require epic prayers. Are you up for some epic prayers tonight? Well, they can be epic because the God we're praying to is sovereign, remember, and all-powerful. And he's revealed his intent. So we can pray epically tonight. 
And that's what we're going to be doing in just a moment. We're going to be praying to our mighty, sovereign God. We're going to be praying for the church and the nation. I don't know about you, but I feel absolutely desperate for the church and the nation. That God fulfill His promise to raise it up and become that glory in the land. So that nations will stream to it. We want to pray for the church and the nation. And then later on, we're going to be praying for, really, I guess, our family of churches and the initiatives that God is putting on our hearts. So there's a church plant that we're going to be praying for in a little while. And then we're going to be praying for more church plants down the track. We have a mission. We have a calling by the sovereign God. So we're going to be praying for that as well. And also we're going to be praying for each other too in our own church situations that this epic sovereign God will come upon our churches and bring it through into a place of glory and strength and power. So we're going to be praying way beyond our ability tonight. And that's the beauty of it. Because we're praying to a God who loves that and who knows it's beyond our ability but well within His. So that's the plan. So can I ask you please just to stand where you are. Let's just stand.